Welcome back to another episode of Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, we figured out just who has been leaking that highly classified information from the White House. It's Donald Trump, who shared top-secret intel about ISIS with Russian officials last week. Also breaking tonight, the White House disputing a report that President Trump revealed highly classified information to Russian officials. Flashbacks to the campaign of last year when the president time and again hammered Hillary Clinton, accusing her of revealing classified information through uh, private email practices and that uh, use of her server. And one U.S. official said Trump, quote, revealed more information to the Russian ambassador than we have shared with our own allies. Well, according to the Washington Post, Trump seemed to be boasting about his inside knowledge of the looming threat. Prati, were you surprised to learn that Donald Trump had been bragging about all the things that he knows? I was very surprised. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Donald Trump I have to say, he never ceases to surprise. Well, I don't know. I mean, he never ceases to amaze, but does he ever surprise? He's just like hitting Donald Trump as a character harder and harder and harder. What I was really surprised about was that the Washington Post reported the story on Monday, and hours later, the White House scrambled to say that it's false. This is just, this is not real. And then what really surprised me is that Donald Trump himself contradicted the White House. Like, they were in damage control mode and saving his ass. And, and he's, he's like, don't like, save me. He's like, no, don't. I did this. <laughs> and I I, and I have a right to do this. Yeah. And he just dug himself into a hole even deeper. He really did. He's a big dummy. Anyway, <laughs> this week, we're very honored to be speaking with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren about her new book, This Fight is Our Fight, The Battle to Save America's Middle Class, and the Trump administration, specifically all those Russia allegations. This should not be a political issue. What Donald Trump has done threatens the security of the United States. But before we get to that, our weekend weenies. So I'm just going to say that choosing weenies was especially hard this week Mm -hmm. because everyone at the White House is a massive weenie for the entire Russia scandal. And it's just, like, boring. Everyone is being a weenie in the exact same way. Yeah. So it was a little bit difficult to choose interesting weenies this week. And just three. Yeah. Our, yeah, and just three. But our first one is National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, because on Monday night, he came out and told reporters that the Washington Post story was totally false. And he said, There's nothing that the president takes more seriously than the, the security of the American people. The story that came out tonight, as reported, is false. The president and the foreign minister reviewed a range of common threats to our two countries, including threats to civil aviation. At no time, at no time, were intelligence sources or methods discussed. And the president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. So, flat out denial. But the next day, literally just hours later, Donald Trump went on Twitter the way he dispenses all information and went on this rant about how he did talk to Russia and he said he had, quote, the absolute right to do facts pertaining to terrorism and airline safety, humanitarian reasons, plus I want Russia to greatly step up their fight against ISIS and terrorism, which is like five different thoughts and none of them are complete sentences. So many thoughts, all of them stupid. And none of them... (laughs) say anything about whether the information was classified or not. But considering that that's 
literally what everyone's asking about, the fact that he was compelled to go to Twitter to, like, set the record straight and make the statement after the White House had roundly denied that anything sensitive was discussed is suspect, really. (laughs) Uh, That's sus, for sure. If I worked in—I bet everyone who works in that White House is so pissed off all the time. All their work is being undone by a gigantic baby who doesn't care. The reports are that the source um, who Donald Trump wants to basically go after now, Mm -hmm. um, the The leaker, leaker. is actually a Trump supporter. Yeah. And he's like— Worked on the Trump campaign. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? Or he or she is like, what am I supposed to do? No one will listen to me. (laughs) Okay. Our next dick is also related to Trump giving classified information to the Russians. I mean, we had to choose two, two of three. All the weenies are leaking this week. (laughs) Yeah. It's Fox News. So Fox News has been diligently avoiding discussing these Trump-Russia ties in a way that is becoming increasingly desperate and roundabout. And it's humiliating for them, and I feel bad. Um, but, you I mean, I think we all can remember, like, lock her up, Hillary Clinton email scandal was all these guys could talk about. But now that we have another issue of a breach of classified information, they— like, can't get enough of romp hymns. I was deeply offended by something today I saw, which is the romp hymn. It is a romper garment that has become very popular with women, now made for men. This is definitely the sort of headline-making news that (laughs) Fox should be reporting on this week. I mean, it's worth a discussion, definitely, but maybe not a headline discussion. Anyway, so Fox News has pivoted. They are obsessed with who leaked that Donald Trump gave classified information away, not that he gave classified information away and endangered our allies. They're obsessed with how the leakers should be caught and punished. As I said, they're obsessed with the romp him, the romper for men. And Tucker Carlson, also on his unbearable show, participated in an extended yell fight with a New York City councilman about the Penn Station men's bathroom. You've been to Penn Station recently? It's in my district. It's like a homeless shelter. It's disgusting. It's in my district. so why are you wasting? You give these speeches, and I just read one, where you're like, you know, Trump is bad. By the way, ignore the guy living, you know, under the ATM machine. We're relieving himself. Oh, Tucker. I'm serious. I go there every week. Tucker. That's your, Penn Station is yours? And you're worrying about Trump's tax returns? Are you joking? Have you been to the men's room there? I mean, is the Penn Station men's bathroom disgusting? I don't know. I've never been in it. But also, is it something that Fox News viewers need to hear about? Definitely not. So our third weenie of the week, moving to something non-Russia, even though we could fill this entire episode with weenies from this past week. You know, you just made me think, when I was in college, I was like, maybe I'm going to take Russian. And then I thought, it's not the 1980s. I'm not in the Cold War. Nobody speaks Russian anymore. And so I took French. <laughs> no, nobody speaks Russian anymore now. No, I mean, like, <laughs> Russia, nobody else. <laughs> anyway, I didn't take it, and I should that was That was a nice little story of how the Cold War impacted Joanna. <laughs> I'm, I'm thoughtful. <laughs> so this week, Politico reported that somebody in the White House has been feeding Donald Trump fake news. Deputy National Security Advisor KT McFarland, what is up with these first initial names in that's a really, the National Security Advisor positions? I, that's a really good question. We should do an investigation we on should. it for a future episode. This maybe Fox can help us. Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing they would care about. Anything. 
other than this. So KT McFarland gave Trump two Time magazine covers, including one that was apparently a hoax, um, a magazine cover from the 1970s that warned about the coming of the Ice Age. And Gizmodo Media Group's special project reporter Anna Merlin reported on the far-right blogger Chuck Johnson, who apparently pals around with neo-Nazis and was once booted off Twitter, not once, he <laughs> was booted off Twitter for threatening civil rights activist Ray McKesson, has formed a, quote, close relationship with the White House. And we know that at least one of his articles has d- reached Trump's desk in the Oval Office in the past. So that's really comforting and explains a lot about Trump's worldview. Chuck Johnson loves Nazis, neo-Nazis. I think you mean Nazis. The Nazis. <laughs> he loves neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis. Nazis. <laughs> Neo-Nazis. And this is the news he's reading. I mean, it makes sense. If that's all the news I was reading, I would also... I think that if that's all the news you were reading, you would begin to question maybe your question your sanity and right. a lot of other things. <laughs> no, but yeah. I bet that's part of it. I bet people are like... I don't really so see that sort of introspection coming yeah. from the White House, though. Right, you're probably... We're going to play a game because we don't have, we never have fun anymore. And it's time for us to have fun. Okay. The game is called Who Did the Tweet? Who Did the Tweet? (laughs) I hope we can play many times again. It's always applicable. You can play with any tweet. Basically, I'm going to read a tweet. Project has to guess who did it. But I'm going to blank out information that could help us. Okay. I like how I like how it's phrased as if this is committing an act of crime. They committed an act of bad tweeting. Okay? Okay. Tweet number one. Blank, 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 <laughs> and blank, blank were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. Not fit. Who did the tweet? Who did the tweet? It's way too coherent, even with the blanks, to be Donald Trump, I think. Mm-hmm. So... Not Donald Trump. Paul Ryan. <laughs> okay, but it was Donald Trump. Oh. <laughs> um, I guess when you take out when you take more out than half all the words, words. <laughs> it's harder to know. The blanks are crooked Hillary Clinton and her team. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Those there we really go. give it away. Yeah. Okay. Next tweet. What do I say to the Marines in my district when blank handles classified information in a careless way yet has no ramifications? Oh, I think I actually remember this one. You do? Yeah. Since I did the blog post. Who did the tweet? (laughs) Who did it? Daryl Issa. It is. Yeah. And so that was about Hillary Clinton. But he responded to the Donald Trump news today when— well, we know this from a Politico reporter, Rachel Bade. She tweeted, here's the here's the tweet for today's scandal. I just asked Daryl Issa about the Comey news, and he flicked me off, literally gave me the middle finger, and kept walking, said nothing. Daryl Issa denied that he flicked her off. He was like, I know this reporter. I like her. Maybe she saw me flick her off, but I didn't flick her off, <laughs> which is an amazing denial. Like, I don't know what she saw, but I didn't do that. 
<laughs> That's definitely how journalism works. Yeah. We kind of just make up things. You that... see things and you're like, maybe I made it up with my eyes. And then you write it down and then as you, fact. And then, and then it's it up down. to you, everyone else to interpret whether or not you made it up. Isn't that how the what, news works? Whether or not you have an eye disorder. <laughs> yes. Or you're delusional. That's how news is. Um, here's another. Most honest people I know are not under FBI investigation, let alone two. Oh, I already also know this one. And the reason I know this one is because I have it bookmarked as my homepage. <laughs> Who is it? Kellyanne Conway. You're right. Okay. And then on the Donald Trump investigation, she went on to Anderson Cooper, which provoked the eye roll heard around the world. She said, The president is not under investigation. I'm around the president. I'm not under investigation. I can name well, many people in that same situation. If you work in the White House and you say, I can name several people not under investigation, that's, like, not impressive. You should be able to name more than that. Like, everybody. <laughs> Nobody should be under investigation. The next tweet is, it's simple. Individuals who are extremely careless with classified info should be denied further access to it. Oh, God, I do know this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay. Um, I mean, I can lie. Don't lie. It, I think it's Don't Paul disrespect Ryan. me and lie. It is. Yeah. He tweeted Wednesday. Also, following the news of the classified Russia leak, he tweeted, tried to show these at Villanova U students the proper way to take a photo. Hashtag on Wisconsin. Just a picture of some college students doing the peace sign. And he's doing a W for Wisconsin. But he hasn't tweeted anything else. Anyway, that wraps up Who Did the Tweet? Hopefully this game will be back when Prachi doesn't know as much. Now we're so honored to have Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren here to discuss her new book, This Fight is Our Fight, The Battle to Save America's Middle Class. Senator Warren, thank you so, so much for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> okay, so you begin the book with a story that I found very upsetting about a woman named Gina who works at a Walmart. Mm -hmm. And so you describe how Gina did everything right. No, she never had any kind of catastrophe, but she still struggles to get by with uh, low wages and unpredictable work schedules. Can this be the status quo that a Republican Congress is satisfied with? Oh, I think this is very much where a Republican Congress is driving us. You know, I, I try to tell two simultaneous stories in the book all the way through. So this is partly a book about the human stories but it is also partly a book that tells the long arc story of the economy in America and about policies in America. So I start the story in 1935, coming out of the Great Depression, and how America had been this incredible boom and bust economy. So, you know, things would be in bad shape, and then they get a little better and a little better, and then they would overheat. And then after about 20 years of that, it would all go crash and come tumbling down. And the problem was, 
it didn't just bring the, you know, the speculators and investors down. It brought people who own small businesses and it brought down employees and it brought down farmers and just widespread devastation. But in 1935, as a country, we did this remarkable thing. We said, we can do better than that. And we used two principal tools. One of them, now, you may want to cover your ears because this is a word that some people don't like to hear. <laughs> we used regulation. Put a cop on the beat on Wall Street, made sure that uh, uh, broke up some of the biggest uh, corporations, enforced antitrust laws, regulated the banks more heavily so that they couldn't blow up the economy. And then the second thing we did was progressive taxation. And we used the money that we got from progressive taxation to invest in opportunity, invest in education, invest in infrastructure, invest in basic research. And here's the deal. It worked. 1935 to 1980, GDP in this country goes up. And most of all, opportunity goes up. The 90% of America, everybody outside the top 10%, the 90%, get 70% of all new income growth in this country. Pretty good, right? We grew a solid middle class, and we created opportunities for kids like me, the daughter of a janitor, to go to school, to, to get a good job. I was a teacher, to have real opportunities. 1980 forward, 1980 to 2016, GDP kept going right on up. But policies in Washington changed, and same two tools. The Republicans were in charge, and they said, deregulate, deregulate, deregulate. And what that meant was fire the cops on Wall Street, reduce the enforcement of antitrust laws, let the big banks do whatever they want to do. What could possibly go wrong? And on progressive taxation, cut taxes for those at the top, and that meant less money to spend on education, on public universities, on K through 12, on pre-K, less money to spend on infrastructure, less money to spend on basic research that drives an innovation economy. And here's the deal. The change, it worked too. GDP kept going right on up, but the 90% of America, everybody outside the top 10%, the 90% got zero percent of the new income growth in this country. Nearly 100 percent of new income growth in this country went to the top 10 percent. And here's the deal. Working families, middle-class families, the whole notion of opportunity has just taken one gut punch after another since 1980. And now Donald Trump is poised to deliver the knockout blow they're doing trickle-down economics on steroids. And America, an America of opportunity, just can't survive that. One of the things that I found particularly hard to understand is how because these enormous chains like Walmart don't have quite as much regulation in with regard to wages— um, they get they end up getting this big government subsidy in in terms of what their employees have to seek. How does that work with kind of the anti-welfare stance of a number of re these Republicans? 
So it's a it's a great question, and I'm glad you, you you framed it up that way. Think of it this way. When I was about 12 and my daddy had a heart attack, and boy, it just turned our lives upside down. No money coming in, the bills stacked up. My mom had been a stay-at-home mom. She got her first job. She pulled on her best dress and her high-heeled shoes, and she walked over to the Sears Roebuck, and she got a job answering the phones. Now, there were two really special things about that job. It was minimum wage, but it was at a time in America when a minimum wage job was enough to support a family of three, when it would pay a mortgage and leave a little left over to help us dig out of a hole on our bills. That minimum wage job saved our family It saved our home. It saved our lives. Roll forward to today when the equivalent would be Gina in in my book who goes off to the Walmart. She's actually better educated than my mother. She had a college degree. She'd had work experience. And and to tell the truth, a little feistier than my mother, ready to get out there (laughs) and make it happen. Gina got hired at Walmart. But here's the deal. Today, a minimum wage job won't support a mama and a baby. It won't help a family get ahead. And worse yet, my mama got 40 hours a week, whether Sears was busy or whether Sears wasn't busy. Gina fights for hours every single week. Some weeks she gets 30, some weeks she gets 40, some weeks she gets 20. And Walmart takes advantage of exactly the setup that says, for Gina and all the others in this world, we can pay them less than it takes to survive, knowing that the U.S. taxpayer will step in and provide Medicaid to make sure that health care services are covered, uh, housing subsidies, rent subsidies, food stamps, all of those things so that Walmart doesn't have to pay its workers a living wage. In fact, the estimate, and I talk about this in the book, is that every Walmart in America, on average, costs taxpayers about a million dollars a year. I mean, just think about that. And, and so the question becomes, why does that happen? How do they get away with that? Why, why is this United States Congress setting minimum wage and working conditions in a place that helps Walmart instead of families? And the answer now is money. Money and power here in Washington. When we have hearings on the minimum wage for all of my Republican colleagues and, frankly, even some of my Democratic colleagues, it's all about what's good for Walmart, what's good for McDonald's, and then they say, and that's what'll be good for workers. And the answer is, no, it's not. We're not setting minimum wage, working conditions, we're not setting them through the lens of what creates real opportunity for families. We're setting them all through the lens of what increases the profitability of Walmart, McDonald's, and a handful of other giant corporations in this country. In your book, you talk about the importance of investing in infrastructure. And I want to pivot that a little bit to talk about the election and the infrastructure of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, I think the results 
of the election revealed that conservatives have a fairly robust infrastructure, um, more so than was thought. And we sort of learned the opposite with Democrats. For example, there's no Democratic equivalent of CPAC, which is a major hub for organizing and, you know, training future conservatives. So as one of the leaders of the progressive movement, I'm wondering what changes you want the party to make to effectively harness all of the activity and energy that we're seeing right now. Oh, yes, 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 yes. We do need infrastructure, and that is the way to think about it. We live in a world where we need to be organized on the progressive side to make sure that every voice gets heard. And the only way that happens is if we actually have the grassroots connection, the people-to-people connections across this country, both at election time and in the times in between. I actually think the infrastructure is important right now today with Donald Trump in the White House and tomorrow and the next day and pushing back on the Republicans right now over health care. I hope we get a chance to talk about that on all kinds of issues. You know, in fact, a tell you a little story about this. Running for Senate in 2012 was literally my first election. And when I went out and raised money, the very first thing we did with the money we brought in was to reinvest it in grassroots, to start opening storefronts in little towns all around Massachusetts, to start buying yard signs, to get telephone lines. So if people would come in that we could have phone lists so they could call people um, to open up so there was a place for volunteers to come. And it was that grassroots energy all across Massachusetts that helped me beat a Republican who had a 65% approval rating when we started and $10 million already socked away in the bank when I had nothing. It, It was grassroots. I mean, that's That's how I ended up in the United States Senate. And the way I look at that experience, it very much colored how I see the whole world of politics, is we need to do that in 49 other states. We can't just talk to each other. We got to reach out. We got to talk to our, you know, crazy brother-in-law, and we got to talk to our uncle, and we got to talk to our neighbors. We got to talk to the people behind us in line at the grocery store and pumping gas next to us at the gas station, you know. Not in a creepy way. <laughs> we got to talk to people about the issues that matter enormously to us. Bring them into the fold. We've got great grassroots energy, but what I want to see is I want to see us tap it, harness it, and grow it. Senator Warren, I know we're running a little bit close to time now, but we do we have two to three quick questions left for you. Oh, let's do it, and I'll try not to give such long answers. Let's <laughs> okay. do them all. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. Appreciate it. Sure. No, no, it's my fault. I I just love talking about this stuff. <laughs> Any chance I get, you know, I, I want to reach out to everybody and say, please, please, please be part of this. We need you. We need you. Well, since we have you here, I'd love to talk about something that's happening this week, in addition to all of this, I mean, in addition. So, yes. <laughs> um, so, the Republican response to the allegations that Donald Trump shared highly classified information with Russian officials have been notably restrained. I think we've all been a little bit surprised. Can you share what you've been experiencing in Washington? Is that how are people 
not concerned as they seem to be expressing that they are? Oh, you know, I, let me start with how deeply shocked I was to find out that Donald Trump had blurted out highly classified secrets to the Russians. And the long-term implications of this, uh, to back off the ally who'd supplied the information, but also other allies. I mean, who wants to share information with the United States if the president uh, may just blurt it out, damaging both our allies' assets in the field, but also compromising important ongoing information-gathering efforts. I, this one is just stunning. I, and I say stunning. I, You know, we all do with Donald Trump. It's like every time he does something, you say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he did that. But this one is over the edge in a whole new way that threatens our national security. I believe that people all around Washington— People in Congress in both parties have come to, to see exactly how dangerous Donald Trump is. And this includes your uh, Republican colleagues? I believe they do see the risks. Now, I think many of them are hesitating about what they want to do about it politically. But I'm urging all of them, put, put country above party this should not be a political issue. What Donald Trump has done threatens the security of the United States. And we need the Congress to step up and act like grown-ups here. We're the ones who have to be responsible now. So on Wednesday morning, Representative Al Green called for Trump's impeachment. Do you support the call for impeachment? I want to be sure that we are keeping this as nonpartisan as possible. And so the way I try to think about this and talk about it is to say, let's start with the facts. We absolutely need to get a hold of Comey's notes, any other written papers, any tapes that may have been made, and we need to get witnesses in here under oath. Let's do our fact gathering so we've got all of the facts on the table in front of us and then evaluate whether or not those facts lead to a charge of impeachment. So you would support impeachment if the investigations prove what the allegations are saying? Absolutely. I, you know, how could we not? Um, l let's be clear. In the past, there has been strong bipartisan agreement that obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense. That's, that's not a Democratic position or a Republican conviction. It is, it is a bipartisan position. And if the facts that are currently alleged are proven, then we should take the next step. So this week, DNC Chair Tom Perez met with pro-life Democrats, and some progressive leaders have been arguing that Democrats should start appealing specifically to the angry middle class Trump voters, most of whom are white. Um, what are the values that the Democratic Party cannot and will not compromise on? Oh, so look, I'm, I'm really clear on this. I, I want to start with where we never compromise, and that's over questions of bigotry, over questions of prejudice. We are the party that believes that everybody counts. 
We are the party that believes in building economic opportunity and social opportunity for everyone. That's where we start this, basic respect for human beings. And when people say, will you compromise on issues like that? The answer is no. Now, I also believe in building economic opportunity, there are going to be places we're going to have to compromise. So, for example, I have a bill to reduce the interest rate on student loans. I think it is obscene that the federal government is making a profit off the backs of people who had to borrow money to go to college. If one of my Republican colleagues would say, I'll join you on your bill, but you're going to have to meet me halfway in how much you want to reduce the interest rate on student loans, my answer would be, you bet. I'm glad to come meet you somewhere in the middle. Uh, because in a case like that, reducing the interest rate some is better than not reducing it at all. But at the end of the day, for me, what it means to be a progressive, what it means to be a Democrat, is about getting out there and fighting for real opportunity, for dignity for all of us. You know, I am strongly pro-choice. I have been in these battles for a long, long time, and I am willing to take to the front lines, and I'm willing to do it anytime anyone needs help. I recognize that not every Democrat agrees with me on that. I'm going to do my best to keep trying to persuade my colleagues who disagree. But what I'm going to do is be out there fighting for the values I believe in. And that means opportunities for women. It means the right of women to determine decisions over their own bodies. It means the rights of everyone to try to build a future, a future for themselves, a future for their kids and their grandkids, a future that's based on a fundamental understanding that all human beings are entitled to dignity and that we together will build a stronger America, not by dividing, but by bringing us together. That's the stuff I really believe. Senator Warren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to it talk was to pleasure you. Likewise. is the best segment of our show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we discuss, you know, just like what we're doing um, so that like every night we don't, so like every morning we don't wake up and we're thinking about politics and then we leave work and we're still thinking about politics and then we like turn on TV and politics and you open Twitter and it's like politics. Like what are we doing that's not that? <laughs> it's called How to Handle the Dicks. That's the name of the segment. Well, that was beautifully <laughs> explained. Um, Pachi, how are you handling them? Well, <laughs> I got, um, this is how I'm not, but then I will say what I did do. I definitely had dreams about Twitter and Donald Trump. Like, I think it was either last night or the night before. I was sick and it was like a fever dream Ugh, about gross. the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And then I w woke up stressed out. Like I had yeah, been blogging for thing. 12 hours, but at night. But... On Friday, I – so, Joanna, you – I think you know this about me, but I don't think our listeners do, which is that I love to dance. 
<laughs> Joanna always cracks up when I say that. Scratchy always earnestly <laughs> on this podcast a couple times. She's been like, well, I love to dance. <laughs> I think it's so funny and cute. <laughs> I love to dance. <laughs> it's like it's like a lifestyle for me. No, I'm kidding. It's not. It's like but, a trait of Megan. Prachi loves. I mean, she it, loves it to is, dance. It is. Pe- yeah. People, it's because I have like an unhealthy love for it in that if I, if it's like, you know, it's like on the weekend and it's like later at night and I'm like, I feel good. I just want to dance. And I can ne- never really find people who want to join me in this quest to dance. So I generally, I often also love to dance. What, Joanna? You have never come out with me to dance before. There have never been. A, there's never been a good time for me to come out. Okay, well, to you, dance. we're gonna make this happen. Did you know that now I was, that I know this about you, growing up, I was a pre-professional dancer. So, wow! And in college, wow. and in college for one whole year, I was a dance double major. Damn, Joanna. <laughs> We mu- we must know. go now that you've told me this. You I'm not say, gonna. You could say about me that I also love to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love to dance professionally. I just I like either. to sway my body and like to music. I like groove to groove. Yes, <laughs> I like to groove. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna start saying from now on. Anyway, so I was in the mood to groove on Friday, and the other thing about going like going out in general, I just. I hate the idea that social conventions make it weird to go out alone, to, like, go to a bar alone, especially if you're a woman. So to counter this, I oftentimes will get into my head that, like, I'm going to make an example of social norms and I'm going to buck the trend and I'm going to go do this on my own. So I go to, like, a bar or a club on my own. But And it, like, starts out as, like, this really defiant, fun idea and then it always ends up not fun at all because the reality of it is that I'll just go there and I'll like drink a beer and I'll be on my phone texting my friends for like an hour standing awkwardly to the sidelines and then finally I will dance but then like weirdos like people I don't want to talk to will come up to me and because they'll be like oh you're alone you're clearly trying to pick up men and I was like no I'm not I'm actually really not but Um, then it's like can can people (laughs) get it through their thick skulls that Prachi just loves to dance I just love to dance and is not trying (laughs) to pick anyone up. I love the dance. (laughs) (laughs) I love to groove. And yeah, so that's my story. As anyway, and then it ends up being like, why did I, why did I do that? I should have just gone home. (laughs) No, I love that you love to dance and that you seek out opportunities to dance. Next time you're coming with me. I can, I will do it next time. My how to handle the dicks. Remember last week I said that I roasted nuts. I'm still eating them, and I'm really loving them. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so much to Senator Elizabeth Warren. This show is produced by Levi Sharp and Chiquita Pascal, with editorial oversight by Kate Trees. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Bye.